Jacob obviously is the third of three characters that go together. Um, now Jacob, of course, lives a very, very colorful, interesting, and tumultuous life. Um, if we get a lot of stories about Abraham in the Torah, and we get very, very little about Isaac, we get a whole lot about Jacob and Jacob's kids and Jacob's wives and all the interactions. A lot of very interesting things going on. Uh, now Jacob is called Bechir Ha'avot, which means the choicest of the forefathers. So he's like the culmination of, of all the work, as if Abraham got it all started, and Isaac perfected the brand a little bit, and Jacob was the one who ob- obtained perfection, so to speak, in, 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 in this uh, being the forefather of the Jewish people. Uh, Abraham and Isaac both had kids that kind of went awry. Uh, Abraham, of course, with Ishmael, and Isaac with Esau. And Jacob's the one who was going to have his, the entirety of his family uh, to be part of the Jewish people, to be the 12 tribes, of course. Uh, but in fact, when we go through his life story, that result of the whole family being intact and being the Jewish people wasn't always assured. Um, when we look at... Uh, at uh, at Jacob, we have to always look at him uh, in two prisms. We have Jacob, of course, the individual, who's someone who's striving for greatness, who wants to be left alone, so to speak, with the books. But, of course, we have Israel, so to speak, which is Jacob as emblematic of the Jewish people, as a microcosm of the Jewish people, who is going to be constantly thrust into challenges, into tribulations, we'll have to leave his comfort zone, we'll have to encounter and engage with forces that are opposing to him, he'll have to learn new tricks to deal with Esau, and deal with Laban, and deal with Esau again, and deal with all the challenges that the Almighty is going to throw his way. Um, and of course this is very much um, uh, emblematic of the Jewish people. You know, We, we may want to be in isolation, in seclusion, to just have our, you know, have our books, have our Torah, focus on building our nation. And, you know, we're bounced out of that. And, you know, we, you know, we're going to be thrust into a terrifying world as well. And we're going to have to go from place to place and encounter various challenges. And who knows, at various points in our history, our end and our success, ultimate success, is not necessarily assured, just like Jacob's was. It was not. Uh, and we always look, of course, at the forefathers as being uh, instructive to the Jewish people. Whatever they encounter, and certainly whatever we're told about in the Torah, are lessons to us in our life and our encounters with the world. And no, no more so than, than Jacob. So the Torah gives us a very interesting backstory to Jacob. And it starts, of course, when Jacob is in utero. Jacob is a twin, Esau, of course. And the Torah tells us that they had a very very painful or very chaotic pregnancy for Rebekah. Now, whenever the Torah is telling us, the Torah is not just telling us the morning sickness of Rebekah, right? That, 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 you know, that, of course, is not important for us. What's important for us is the lessons that that implies. So, of course, Rashi tells us that Jacob and Esau represent two different worlds. And this cosmic struggle 
that they represent began already when they were in utero. In utero, they're put on the paths of, of Jacob on one path and Esau on the other path. And this a conflict is, is set in stone, so to speak. It means part of the reality of the world is that Jacob and Esau are going to be on opposing sides. In fact, we're told in, in the Jewish sources that it's not possible for these two kings to use, to each have their own crown. Is this in utero stuff? Uh, is it in the Torah? Or oh, yeah, the, 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 the Midrash? Oh, the Torah talks about, the, about them struggling it? in utero, yes. Okay. Yes, of course, when you open up the oral Torah, you see more of the backstory. Uh, for example, we're told in the oral Torah that, uh, that when, whenever they pass the house of scholarship, Jacob is pining to leave. Whenever they pass a house of idolatry, Esau is pining to leave. What this means is, is that already in utero, the struggle began. And it's going to continue indeed throughout the course of their lives, but throughout the course of history. Uh, at their birth, another very interesting story, episode, anecdote we're told about their birth. So who's born first? Esau is born first. He is the firstborn um, by right, so to speak. Um, but what happens? As he's being born, Jacob is being born as well, and he reaches out and he grabs onto the heel of Esau. Now, this sounds like a very nice, cute story. Uh, the two twins, and they're grabbing at each other. But when the Torah tells us, it doesn't tell us just for the, you know, the, the, the relief, so to speak, of this cute story. Rather, it's telling us because it represents something. Now, the name that Jacob is given, Yaakov in Hebrew, name I share, uh, actually refers to this episode. It's very interesting. Like, this episode was so significant that when he grabbed into the heel of Esau, that that became his name. Because the, the Hebrew word for heel is Ekev, and thus the Hebrew name for Jacob is Yaakov, the same, the, same, the same root of the word. But of course, this is not just a story. The Torah doesn't tell us just stories uh, for our entertainment. Rather, it underscores Jacob's core quality. We have a cosmic struggle between Jacob and Esau. Who has the head start? Right? Who is you know, out in front? In that chariot race, right? Who, you know, who, who has a few uh, lengths lead? Esau. But as we get close to the finish line, Jacob is going to grab his heel and come out ahead. And by the way, what does Esau, what does he call Jacob? He also has a name for Jacob. It's also Yaakov. But it's from the word, we'll see later on in the story of uh, of the blessings, Esau is complaining to Isaac, to their father, that he's called Yaakov, Vayakveni, which is the same word, and he uh, impeded me twice. So the word Yaakov also refers to the heel, but also refers to the fact that we're an impediment. Right? Esau views us as an impediment. The idea of the Jew being positioned, being represented as the thing that's stopping the progress of Esau, that's already since the beginning. And it doesn't necessarily need to be grounded in reason. Our name, the way Esau looks at Yaakov, he's an obstacle to me. He's an impediment. You know, whether it's true or not, that's how he views us. 
it's kind of carried on for. Oh yeah, and then we look at this at this beginning of this relationship, of this struggle, of this conflict, as being representative of what's going to happen in the future. And we see we see times in history where anti-Semitism, baseless anti-Semitism. You know, for example, like what you know what Hitler famously did, where he somehow convinced the Germans that all their struggles, all their financial troubles, all their military uh, failures, all their diplomatic uh, uh, losses were all due to the Jews. When the Jews were, you know, 0.5% of the population, one out of every 200 Jews, uh, Germans was a Jew, and they were very patriotic, and they fought valiantly in World War I. And they were... Maybe there were a lot of one percenters, right? But 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 they contributed to the development of the country. So it's it's there's no rhyme or reason for the people to believe it, unless in their minds they look at Yaakov as Vayakrenia, as just they're a hindrance, they're a stumbling block, and that's the way it is. No matter what, not if it's if it's true or not, or if it's evidence based or logic based or not. Crazy, yeah, yeah, and, and by the way, whenever whenever Hitler talked about the Bolsheviks, he referred to Jews. Jews were Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks were Jews, always, you know, and that's why he, he used that as justification for his attack on the Soviet Union. Really, he wanted the Jews. It wasn't it wasn't about the Lebensraum. It wasn't about that. Um, that's the word, right? Yeah. Um, and this is also very interesting because we look at the story of of Yaakov. And at any point in time, all the way to the end, he wasn't sure, and us as neutral observers aren't sure how the story is going to end. We don't know if Yaakov is going to come out ahead. And then we see that he's named for the, the beginning, the beginning of his story is like, he's going to grab the heel. He ultimately, you know, when the finish line, when the ultimate triumph uh, is pending... Jacob is going to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. So that's the, that, you know, that's the what we're told about him uh, all the way uh, from the beginning. Now, as they uh, mature, we're told Jacob sat in the tents and Esau was a man of the fields. So from the beginning, we see that Jacob has a, a, a tendency towards being more scholarly, towards being more studious, towards focusing on the more intellectual realms of life. Uh, while Esau is more representative of the physical. Um, now, importantly, and this is not, uh, not, not our subject, but it's important to address it, that Esau does not necessarily need to choose a life of evil. The fact that Esau is, you know, is, is, is an opponent to Jacob, that's by his choosing. What Esau ought to have done is to accept the role of being complementary to Jacob's mission. For example, we're told in Rashi, Rashi quotes the Talmud that says that when Jacob and Esau were in utero, who, who, who was this conflict? It was a conflict of Rabbi Judah the prince and Antoninus. Who's Antoninus? So Judah the prince is the leader of the Jewish people at the end of the, of the second century of the Common Era. He is the ultimate manifestation of Jacob. And Antoninus is Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who is the, who was the Roman emperor, year 161 to I think 181, who is a friend of the Jews and, and, and a colleague and friend 
of Rabbi Judah the Prince, and they were together, and they had, you know, you know they, they, they focused on what they had overlapping, and both of them flourished. And that was Esau in his ultimate manifestation. So Esau wasn't necessarily um, you know, preordained to be evil, right? and there, you know, Esau could have been a tremendous boon for the Abrahamic mission, and in certain ways he, he ended up being as well, but his evil was of, of his choosing. Now, um, the first major story we're told about Jacob and Esau is the story of the blessing. So we spoke about it a little bit last week, um, what, the, what the disagreement was between Isaac and Rebekah. But Jacob is told to go dress up, masquerade as Esau, come to his dad, tell his dad that he indeed is Esau, and take the blessings. This is the first example where Jacob is told you have to behave in a different way because of your mission. It's imperative that you seize these blessings. You have to get them. What do you do? You have to to become a chameleon. You have to be able to recreate yourself on the fly. You have to, you know, just change who you are. You've got to dress up like Esau sometimes. We see the Jewish people are are forced out of our comfort zone all throughout our history. Now, uh, Jacob's quality, if Abraham was kindness and Isaac is justice, Jacob's quality is truth. So we see every story of Jacob, it's predicated on truth, and here he's being told, get dressed up like Esau. Go and tell your dad you are Esau. Exactly. So if you actually look at the story, what does he tell his dad? So his dad comes, he f- dad feels him up. Dad's blind, right? Isaac is blind. So he feels Jacob, feels him up. He's like, well, this feels like Esau. It, but the, the voice is Jacob's voice. So what, is he, uh, you know, what does Jacob tell his father? He says, I am Esau, your firstborn. So is that a lie or not? Sounds like a lie, right? But if, how, how about if we read those same words like this? I am Esau, your firstborn. We get a little break there. It's like, I am who I am. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm me. Esau, your firstborn. I think he told a bold-faced lie. Well. But it befuddles my ability to understand how a parent, he may be blind, but his ears were working just right. Why is that? Well, I've always been bothered. Why are you telling him to do that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> put the responsibility back on Rebecca. Rebecca. I mean, is she supposed to be a follow-up of the Jewish faith, right? Or the Abrahamic faith, right? She's supposed to be. Then why would she... It makes no sense. She's not doing... Why is that? She's part of the plot to uh, undermine... To, what, to, to steal the blessings? Well, that was a disagreement. They had a disagreement. Should Jacob be the one... To, uh, to end up with the blessings or not. But, but, but to answer your question, uh, I think that Isaac knew there was a possibility that Jacob would try to usurp the blessings. Is that right? But he would have to so he told... So he, so he told... Because, the, no, Isaac and Rebecca had a, a well-established disagreement. Should 
Jacob end up with those blessings or just the blessings of Abraham like he got at the end? It was clear. God wasn't going to provide unless you tell a lie. Well, was was it was you called it a bold face? Rashi goes out of his way to point out that if you actually technically, you know, it could have been misinterpreted as a lie, but he, all he said was, "I am Asaph is your firstborn." Okay, but wait a minute. That's all he said. Huh? But wait a minute, let's get back to what we said, yeah, Uh, let's get back to what we said in other lessons, Uh, you live by the commandments, you don't die, wasn't it meant to be that um, Jacob should get the blessing, and so therefore... It was a lie. Well, no, it wasn't. That's the thing. It wasn't a technical lie. It was kind of bordering. I think it technically was a lie. Well, I am. Is that is that a lie? Ace of your firstborn. Is that a lie? No. Yeah, it is. So obviously, he's trying to trick Isaac. That's that. And that's but it's it's for the greater. That's what has to happen. If not for those blessings, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Okay, so we'll we'll have to chart that up. Well, God did work his magic to that that Isaac was was fool. So my theory is that Isaac and Esau actually knew that this was a possibility. So they told him Isaac and um, Isaac told Esau, "Listen, this this is what you're supposed to do. When you come, make believe you're Jacob." Because I know when Jacob is going to come try to steal the blessings, he's going to make believe he's you. So he's going to talk in a rough and gruff voice. You know, remember, these are twins, right? They, they, you know, they knew each other really, really well. So Jacob is reluctantly thrust into this. In fact, his mom has to convince him. He says, his mom tells him, if dad curses you, I'm going to accept those curses. It means Jacob's terrified. This is, this is Isaac. Right? He, you know, he's a prophet. Whatever he says is going to happen. So I want those blessings. I certainly don't want those curses. This right? is called the he's, suspension of belief. So, so Rebecca says, you do this. This is what's going to happen. You do it. And if he curses you, I'll accept that upon them. It's not going to go on you. And either way, the, the, uh, uh, the, the bless, he manages to usurp the blessings. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, the rest is history. But um, there's an interesting line that kind of reverberates throughout the whole Jacob and Esau, Esau story and certainly throughout the history of what Jacob and Esau represent. Uh, the hands are the hands of Esau and the voice is the voice of Jacob. Hakol kol Yaakov. And this is indeed what the Jewish people are. You know, we don't uh, mediate disagreements by force. You know, we don't use our hands. We like to talk things out. We like to focus on ideas that can be communicated. That is our hallmark. But Whereas our foes are going to very much re, you know, resort to violence as the only means of trying to achieve their ends. Yes, but Rabbi, and I know we're fast-forwarding to current day, but ultimately Jews will resort to force if there's no choice. I mean, yeah, well, you don't even... God need, knows they know that in Israel. Yeah, you don't even uh, need to go to current days. We'll, we'll actually see when Jacob and Esau reunite... Jacob prepares for battle as well. So you don't have to go, uh, go, uh, go much further. What if, what if Esau had gotten the blessing? Uh, then the Jewish people would not, throughout history, 
be uh, successful, as successful uh, financially as we have been. Uh, and thus, when times uh, called it for... Have had the star with the dollars that Trump just put up. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, it's, we look at throughout history, it's been many, many, many times Jewish people are facing existential threats and they're able to buy their way out of trouble. You know, the Jews have a penchant for finance. It's just the Jews are so overrepresented in finance, it's unbelievable. So those are numbers. Well, whatever you want to do with that is up to you. Um, where does that come from? Why are we so good with money? And this is not, this is not just in modern times. It's throughout history. We know the Jews were always the money lenders. Yes, but there was a reason for that historically. They weren't allowed of to course, the there, are, there were other reasons for that. But even today, so today where those reasons don't apply, we still see the Jews itself. It's, it's fact. You know, uh, of course, it's also fodder for anti-Semites. But it still is fact that Jacob was given a blessing to be very successful financially. So and historically, they were. Well, I'd like to read it. I think I read it last week. Okay, ready? This is the blessing. Chapter 27, verse 28. This is the quote from the blessing. May God give you of the dew of the heavens and of the fatness of the earth and abundant grain and wine. Peoples will serve you and regimes will prostrate themselves to you. Be a lord to your kinsmen and your mother's sons will prostrate themselves to you. Cursed be they who curse you and blessed be they who bless you. That is the text of the verse. So the wealth of the has to do with the, the grain. Abundance. And the that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, but that was what they used for. It was yeah, that's that. that yeah, that's that time, so that was financially. Yeah, that's so that's that's always used as a. Do we read that? Uh, that's uh, we actually read it on on Saturday night. You're right. Uh, um, it's I guess it's an auspicious time for prayer. So you want to pray that? But start the you start the work week. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, so what happens at the aftermath of the blessing? Uh, Esau is extremely disappointed. Uh, he cries furious. He cries out. He pledges in his head and his mind and his heart uh, to murder his own brother, fratricide. As soon as Isaac is out of the equation, he's going to do it. Um, of course, it's a very dangerous situation for Jacob to be in. Uh, his mother recognizes that, and she convinces his dad to send him away. Send him east the same way that uh, um, Isaac found a wife from Ab- the Abrahamic family back east. Jacob will find a wife as well. Um, but, of course, Jacob is aware of his brother's animosity towards him and his brother's commitment to, uh, to take back by force. Right? The hands are the hands of Esau. Uh, and that's going to be, a, we're going to revisit that as well uh, later on. So Esau's wife was not Jewish? Huh? Esau's wife was not Well, remember, the Jewish nation wasn't founded yet. This is the Jewish family, so to speak, the Jewish tribe. So the lineage of... So it's Abraham's family was the one that was more closely connected to the ideas of Abraham. Uh, and once again, just like Abraham made Eliezer swear not to take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanite woman, uh, Isaac implores upon Jacob to not marry a Canaanite woman, but to go back to the family of Abraham. And 
Jacob is going to marry two of his first cousins. He's going to marry Rebecca. Rebecca is his mom. Rebecca's brother is Laban. Laban has two daughters. And the story will tell a very bizarre story uh, how he ends up marrying both of them. Esau marries a variety of women. Esau actually marries, the, one of the women that he marries is the daughter of Ishmael. So also kind of from the family of, uh, uh, of, of Abraham, but Esau has a harem of women. And but isn't he, that, you're marrying your sister? Basically. No, no, that would be, no, no, that would be his cousin as well. His father's half-brother, kids or half-cousins or whatever. But Esau uh, had a harem of women, but also he didn't need to establish marital uh, relations to engage in marital relations. Why do we want all this inbreeding? He was, huh? Why do we want all this inbreeding? Well, as a physician, you know yeah. that marrying your first cousin only increases the genetic probability of having a, of having a, a child with uh, deficiencies from 2 to 3 percent to 4 to 6 percent. Not so much. There weren't as many fish in the sea at that time. No, well, that may not be. But even so, I'm saying, but also uh, systemic inbreeding of yeah. that causes more problems, genetic yeah. problems. Um, yeah, I mean, because Judaism, you know, sticking together and all that stuff, it's more of these peculiar things like Tay Sachs and all these weird. Yep. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. So, what happens um, with Esau in terms of the abundance that he has? Jacob gets the blessing. And ultimately, is sent away. And, and yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so Esau, Esau, the Esau, the individual, does very well. Remember, Isaac, Abraham was inordinately wealthy. Isaac was extraordinarily wealthy, um, and Jacob and Esau both of them become very wealthy. Um, so, the, the the debate over here is not on Esau's personal finances, but rather what Esau represents. And and you know the, the nation of and the, the, the nation the future generations of Esau we're going to get a, a very long list of them, uh, and that becomes um, a whole nation and their finances are going to fare uh, poorly compared to the Jewish people. Of course, Esau himself does very well. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of that. Um, um, Jacob, of course, is like I said, he represents. The, the voice, the voice of Jacob. He's going to be the Jewish people. Um, we're going to look at Esau historically is going to be represented by the by the Christian nations. Various various Christian nations come come from Esau, um, so they're going to have like this personalities where for many hundreds of years, uh, you know, the rule of Christianity was marked by, you know, the hand of Esau, which is rule of force, expulsions, inquisitions. Blood libels, massacres of of the innocent, crusades. Of course, that's the history of 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 the Christian of the Christian nation. But they're going to have elements of good to them as well. You know, they're going to also bring the Abrahamic ideals or a certain variety of it. Uh, because remember, Esau also is a grandson of Abraham, so he has the Abrahamic qualities to them as well. Uh, so there's going to be episodes of kindness, of benevolence, uh, and eras of kindness of benevolence that Esau's nation, the nation of Esau, is going to represent. And certainly they're, they're going to do a lot towards bringing the Abrahamic ideals to the, you know, to the world stage. Of course, there's something wrong with the 
ideology of Christianity vis-a-vis the Abrahamic principles, right? Because the idea of, of giving uh, divine qualities or divine uh, labeling of, of a human is anathema. You know, the idea of one God is one God, not one with parts. That was Abraham's idea. But, you know, if you look at what Christianity emerged from and what it evolved into... It basically took the 30,000 gods of the Romans and whittled it down to, you know, just a couple, you know. So, so you know, the Abrahamic idea of taking the every, every power uh, being represented by its own god and kind of coalescing the powers into one entity, that was done, you know, more or less uh, by Ishmael, his, by, of course, by the Jewish people, so Isaac and Jacob, and by Ishmael to a very, you know, very large extent with, the, with, the, with, the, with Islam, and by Esau as well. And thus the Abrahamic influence indeed is not limited to the Jewish people, even the Jewish people kind of have it in its, in its perfect form. Okay. Well, they're more co- theologically aligned. Um, so, for example, the Rambam, Maimonides, he's the authority in this, and he labels um, Islam as, you know, monotheism the way we believe in, um, as opposed to Christianity, that would be idolatry on the Jewish standards, right? The Jewish standards would be considered idolatry. But I'm saying it's still, a, 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 you know, a vast improvement over what preceded it. And the idea of Mashiach, by the way, is a universalistic tinkering of, of this ideology. We, we don't need to change the world radically. We just need to kind of just amend a few things. No, the, the idea of a human being a God, that's, that has to be withdrawn. And one God, and that, that, but that's, that, that's an alignment. That's a tinkering. That's not a, a vast recreation of, of ideology. Okay, so... Jacob uh, heads out east. That's the next parsha. Uh, he leaves his family and he goes east. Where does he go to? He goes to a place called Haran. Remember Haran? Haran is where Abraham, when Abraham began in Ur Kastim, on the other side of the Euphrates River, he went to Haran, right, which is in Asia Minor, but still east, northeast of Israel. And uh, ultimately he went to Israel, called Canaan, called various different names. So uh, Jacob leaves Beersheba, leaves Israel. He goes to Haran on his way to head to the family of, uh, of, of Abraham. And then he has an epiphany. Very, very, very important story here. The story of Jacob's ladder. So but what's the back story of Jacob's ladder? So he goes to Haran and then he turns back and goes back to Temple Mount. Now every time in the Torah it says the place, it's referring to Temple Mount. Always. Now, Jacob overshoots Jerusalem, and he heads all the way to Haran, and then he says, oh my goodness, I can't believe I, I, I passed by the place where Abraham prayed, where Isaac prayed. I walked right by there, I didn't stop and pray. So he turns around, heads back, and he goes there. And he goes there, and he has a spiritual experience there, and then... So he goes to sleep. Is that the Temple Mount? Yes, 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 yes. And then he goes to sleep and he has a prophecy. Now, what's the nature of his prophecy? Uh, 
So he sees a ladder. The ladder is, the foot of the ladder is on the earth. At the top of the ladder is in the heavens. And there's angels going up and down. Very interesting imagery that he, that he sees. And then he, the Almighty appears to him and says to him as follows. Let me read you the verses here. Very critical verses. I am Hashem, God of Abraham and your father, your father and God of Isaac. The ground upon which you are lying, to you will I give it and to your descendants. Once again, this is like the tenth time already in Genesis. We are promised that we will have the land of Israel. You're, now if you want to go to the more esoteric sources... They, the esoteric sources talk about God folding up the land of Israel and making it all this massive mattress under Jacob. So the land that you're lying on is as if the Almighty condensed all of Israel. Okay, fine, but that's a, a, little, bit, a little bit more esoteric. Your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out powerfully eastward, westward, northward, and southward. And all the families of earth shall bless themselves by you and by your offspring. Behold, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go. I will return to the soil, for I will not forsake you until I, until I will have done what I have spoken to you. Once again, another divine pledge of, of, of guardianship, uh, assurances that the Almighty won't abandon and forsake us. Now, we're actually told in Jewish sources, it's a very interesting idea. Um, we're told, the Talmud tells us, that Jacob had this inspiration to go back and, pre- and, pray, in, and pray in that location. What would have happened had Jacob not been inspired, not turned around, head back from Haran, not gone back? To, he wouldn't have gotten those blessings. So we see kind of the impact of a moment of inspiration that indeed the blessings that we are receiving today, that, you know, this blessing, we wouldn't have gotten it. Abraham's, oh, sorry, Jacob's inspiration decision to go and pray in the place where Abraham and Isaac prayed, that's a boon for the Jewish people because we have a blessing now that might will never forsake us. Of course, we have other blessings as that, but each one has its own value. He spends the night there, uh, after that, he heads uh, east, and he goes and he stops at the well. Very often we find stories of great leaders going to the wells, especially when they're trying to find a spouse. He heads to the well, and there's lots of flocks there, everyone's there, and there's a big boulder on the well, and everyone's sitting around. So he's like, what's going on? Why is everyone sitting around? What's going on over here? He says, what do you mean? There's this boulder in the well. We have to feed our sheep. And we have to wait till there's enough uh, mass of, of shepherds to, to roll, the, roll the stone over. So, so Jacob's like, what do you mean? He goes and pushes it over. Jacob was a man of tremendous physical ability as well. Either that, or I had another theory recently uh, that maybe Jacob had, you know, like the, those stories where God forbid there's a kid trapped under their car and the mom comes and just lifts the car. Adrenaline. Well, adrenaline. Yeah. So maybe Jacob had this adrenaline uh, to just have superhuman strength. Now, why would he have this adrenaline? He was smart enough to see that there was a good angle. Yeah, okay. Because he was smart to start. That's for sure. Um, why would he have this adrenaline? So the Torah actually points out that Jacob saw Rachel and she was leading her flock um, towards the well. And therefore, he went and pushed. Maybe it was 
kind of the, the warm feelings that he had, and he didn't want Rachel to sit around waiting for a couple of hours. Maybe. That's a, a theory. He had this adrenaline. Either way, he sees Rachel. He right away recognizes uh, that she is going to be uh, he, she's going to be his wife. He runs over to, he kisses her, he starts crying. Why is he crying? Because remember, Jacob the prophet. And Jacob foresees that he's not going to be buried with her. Because we know the story, the, the, the end of uh, the story of Rachel is that she's going to be buried in Bethlehem, not going to make it to Hebron. Uh, she's not going to be buried in the ancestral burial plots of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca. And Jacob's being buried there with Leah, not with Rachel. Um, now, the cousin's there, and Laban's all excited. He runs out to meet them, and they have this wonderful encounter. And he says, oh, well, I want to marry uh, your daughter Rachel. Sure, no problem. And Laban is one of the uh, creative, most creative businessmen, shall we say. The wiliest of business, shrewd businessmen <laughs> of all time. Uh, he's a bit talker, and doesn't really deliver the goods, right? Sure, of course, you can marry, uh, well, but what are you going to do to earn it? You've got to earn your stay, earn your keep. So he says, well, how about this? You work for seven years. After seven years, you marry Rachel. Jacob says, no problem. He worked seven years. Total dedication. And, you know, he's such a fantastic worker, so dedicated, so capable that Laban's net worth just skyrockets because of him. After seven years, he did his full, you know, he did the full, the, the full, full service. Um, now, just as an aside, when, 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 when Jacob encounters Rachel, he says, I am a relative of your father, and I'm the son of Rebecca. So he actually talks about two different relationships. So what he's hinting to her, and this will be a, the theme of, of the next episode of his life, is that I'm a relative of your dad. Your dad is renowned for his creativity in, in, in dealing with people. I'm going to deal with him. You should, he should know I'm a relative of him. If need be, I could be just as creative as he is, just as wily as he is. But I'm also the son of Rebecca. I also have the piety uh, of the son of Rebecca, and I could behave. It means I, I will mirror his behavior. And once again, we see the Jewish people throughout history were sometimes forced to, in, you know, to take on unconventional uh, relationships, and we have to respond accordingly. Now, uh, Jacob was very wary of Laban. <clears throat> Therefore, he says, I'll work for seven years. And he says all this, Berachel bitcha haktana. I'll work for seven years for Rachel, your daughter, the younger one. He kind of removed all doubt. He didn't say, I'll work for your daughter, because then he'd say, well, I have lots of daughters. Uh, I work for Rachel. Which Rachel? Maybe the neighbor is Rachel as well. You know, Rachel, your youngest daughter. That's what he tells him. Just to, just to be absolutely abundantly clear. It's like, you know, when you have a lawyer who's writing, drafting a document, you want to make it so airtight. There's no room for negotiation. Like, it's all in there. There's no way to avoid it. And somehow, Laban, of course, managed to do it. <laughs> Still managed to trick them. Seven years later, he gets married, and of course, Laban is up to his trickery. He actually supplants Rachel with Leah. Leah was his older daughter, also a remarkable woman. We'll learn more about these women. 
and a remarkable woman, but not part of the agreement. So what happens? It's the, you know, the, you know so he gets both kids dressed up, and, you know, and Leah's told, you're the bride, and Rachel realizes what's going on, and Jacob, of course, is oblivious to this. We, you know, it was abundantly clear in our agreement. And in the morning, he realizes it's Leah. Okay, so what happened with Rachel, Rachel and Leah? So this is a very interesting backstory. We're told that Jacob and Rachel were wary that Laban may try to do some, you know, some chicanery. Therefore, they agreed to have code words between them. That when they get married, she's wearing the veil, of course, but she'll say a few select code words to him to tell her that she indeed is Rachel. And what were the, those code words? Anyone knows what those code words are? No. Those code words were the three mitzvahs that are representative of women. The mitzvahs of Nida, of Chala, and of lighting the candles. Those, are the, the, those three words, that was the code. Uh, Nida, the laws of Nida. Now... Rachel sees Leah being led as the bride. So she realizes that in the throes of the wedding, Jacob's going to ask her for the code words. She, of course, has no idea what they are. And there's going to be a tremendous uproar. What's going on? He's going to pull up the veil. Who is this? You're tricking me. Everyone's watching. What shame for Leah. She ran over to Leah and said, by the way, Jacob told me to tell you that he's going to ask you for these three code words, and she gives him the code words. So only in the morning did Jacob realize that it's Leah. Now this story tells us an incredible amount about Rachel and about Jacob. Jacob and Rachel had an agreement that they, they're marrying, and Baruch with your youngest daughter, Rachel, it was abundantly clear. But uh, an additional measure of precaution, they added these code words. Now, when Rachel saw Leah being led to the marriage as the would-be bride, she told her the codes, but she did not tell her that these were actually my codes. She actually told her in the manner, in, in a way of saying, like, this is what Jacob told me to tell you. He wanted to pass it on to you. So Leah never had a clue that Rachel was indeed the intended. She thought it was her. Her dad says, hey, you're marrying Jacob. He's a wonderful guy. He's been working with us for a bunch of years. He's your cousin. You're the oldest. You got married first. She's totally oblivious to this whole backstory. She wasn't, she wasn't privy to the agreement between Jacob and Laban. She wasn't privy to the discussions and code, code uh, words that were passed from Jacob to Rachel. She's not aware of any of that. To her, this is her wedding day. These are her code words. And Jacob waits in the morning. He's been deceived. So he didn't even notice the voices? They must have been really similar? He's he, wasn't in, he wasn't involved. Since they have maybe, maybe he was a little bit... Uh, who knows? That's not so unreasonable. So, and, and what happens in the morning? So Jacob realizes it's Leah, and he's like, wait, wait a minute. He runs over to Laban, what's the deal? You tricked me. 
you know, well, it's our tradition. <laughs> it's our tradition that you marry after the younger daughter first. Says, well, why don't you tell me about that, right? You know, tell me about that seven years ago. Yeah. It's just incredible deception. Now, Leah is, again, Jacob doesn't want to make her feel bad. He doesn't tell her about all this. Right? You know, he just airs his grievances with Laban, not with Leah. You know, he's now, he is married to Leah. So what happens? Seven days later, you finish the party, he marries Rachel again, as well. Seven days? Or yeah, seven, seven, seven days of, of, of festivities, yeah. and he marries Rachel with the agreement he'll work for seven more years for Rachel. But afterwards, this time, James like, no, 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 I want Rachel up front, <laughs> and I'll do the work after you, right? Uh, you know, let's uh, have... I'm not, I'm not taking so chances Jacob anymore. He could have reneged after he Rachel, married Rachel. He could have said, well, I'm not going to work. Now, but what's also interesting here is that in Leah's mind, she was always the intended one. Right? And Rachel is just a tag-along. Because Jacob and Rachel never told her of this whole batch. They don't make her feel bad. So in her mind, she's the original one, and her younger daughter's a tag-along. And you know what? She's fine with that as well. She doesn't make her sister feel bad by making her feel like as if she jumped in the bandwagon suddenly. So no one's aware of what's going on. This is, this is the critical part to, later on in the story. Now, by the way, uh, in, in history, we know that Rachel is tremendously powerful because of this story, the self-sacrifice that she demonstrated, the saving uh, The honor of her her sister made her a very powerful spiritual force. In fact, we're told Jewish people are led into exile and they stop off and pray in Bethlehem in her grave. Her grave till this day. In in, in ancient sources, in in the book of Jeremiah talks about praying at the the grave of of, of Rachel. It's specifically always invoking this story. This story makes her power, her prayer, Impregnable. It, it, it's, 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 it's so potent. Whenever we evoke her story, her descendants, the Jewish people, can greatly benefit from it. Yeah? What about the, um, was it a law or just a tradition that like, when you get married, that, that following year you're together and there's no like, interference, I guess? Yeah, so, 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 so. How does that work with. Well, so they, the, you know, he was. Well, seven days of festivities, then he had another marriage. But I would assume for the first year, he was dedicated to both of them. I, I'm, I assume Jacob was dedicated the whole, his whole life to both of them. <laughs> well, well, two years or one year? <laughs> well, I was wondering, what is there any talk, in, or does it say what ultimately happened to Leah? Did she get married to someone else? No, Did no. She... So for the rest of his life, Jacob was married to both of them. Now, um, so what actually happened to the story here? So um, Jacob starts working for seven more years. Of course, he has some animosity in his seven more years. He has some animosity in his heart. Rachel is still his favorite. And Leah, less so, right? So what happens? So where is Rachel's animosity toward her father? She may not have had You'll, we'll, we'll, we'll see that's the, the back story as well. When they leave, she does, she does a little bit of twisting the knife when they escape middle of the night. <laughs> she twists the knife a little bit, but she suffers as a result. Uh, verse 31 here, chapter 29. Oh, let's start with with, uh, verse 30. Uh, Jacob consorted also with Rachel and loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for him for another seven years. Okay. Hashem saw that Leah was unloved, and so he opened her womb, but but Rachel remained barren. 
So what happens in quick succession? Leah has multiple kids. She has Reuben, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, four kids, and Rachel has exactly zero children. Um, now, what's every name we're told the reason why they named her? Now, she names Judah. We're going to go through each one of them. Judah, she's named Judah. Judah, the word from the word hoda, which means appreciation, gratitude. The word Judah means gratitude. Um, and of course, she says, I'm grati- I have gratitude to the Almighty. He gave me another child. But not only that, he gave me more than my fair share. Uh, it, it becomes clear with learning through the stories is that both Jacob and his wives they were aware that Jacob was destined to have 12 sons. Thus, he ultimately had four wives. We'll get to that story in a little bit. Uh, but thus, each one of them should, you know, to, you know, if it was going to be evenly distributed, each one of them should have three sons. And now Leah already has four. Right? Out, out of Jacob's four kids, she has them all. And therefore, she shows appreciation for the fact that she has more than her fair share. Uh, now, of course, Rachel is devastated. She's alone. She doesn't have any, uh, any children. And she says to Jacob, give me children, otherwise I am dead. That's a very important thing. Like, Jade, Rachel's devastated that she doesn't have any children. And therefore, and she says, like, like my life is not worth anything. She's obviously devastated by the fact that she doesn't have any, any children. Um, so, what he tells her... So, Laban gave each one of his uh, daughters uh, like a maidservant, and she follows the uh, the path laid forth by Sarah. The righteous women is that if they, as a merit, to 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 to, uh, to have children, give one of her maidservant her maidservants to, to Jacob. So Jacob ultimately marries Billa and Zilpah, both both maidservants, and has two sons from each. So. Uh, uh, she has Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher from uh, Billa and Zilpah. And then we read the story about the Dudaim. So the Dudaim, it's not clear, were these some sort of uh, vitamins that helped fertility? Were they aphrodisiacs that help uh, um, you know, raise uh, the, I don't know, the hormones or whatever? Either way, Ruvain, the oldest, the eldest son, Son of of Leah, he is out in the fields and he finds these mandrakes. Yeah, whatever they are, it's not so clear what they are. It's a bit debates what they are. They're called dudaim. So he finds them and he gives them to his mom. And Rachel says, "Leah, can I have some? I don't have any kids. You have a whole bunch of kids, right?" So this, this is what she responds. Leah responds. This is verse fifteen. Was your taking my husband insignificant, and now to take even my son's dudaim? In Leah's mind, she's the martyr. She's the one who gave up her husband to Rachel. Right? Rachel was a tagalog, right? She was the first, first wife. That, that was the plan all along. And then Rachel comes along and says, oh, I want to marry Jacob as well, and that, I'm fine. She's quiet about that. She has four kids. But now she takes away her husband, and she wants to take away the dime. Leah never was aware Jacob and Rachel never told her that it was actually, she was not intended to marry Jacob at all. They never told her that. She's incredible. And that's why she's, she's can't believe the gall of Rachel asking for some of the, of the dudaim. She, can't, she can't, can't believe it. When in reality, 
It's the opposite. So we see that it's unimaginable the, the quality of people that we're dealing with here. We have Leah on one hand. She's had four kids. Right? She, she's been married, who knows, for five, five years already? Been a long time, right? Maybe four years at the minimum. And she never once aired her grievances to Rachel. The fact that she came and stole her husband. Only this provoked that. And Rachel and Jacob, both of them, never said anything about the fact that, you know, this heist uh, that uh, Laban pulled off. It's unbelievable character we can't imagine. But Leah should have also understood Rachel's position because her status in the community would have been through having sons. Oh, yeah, of course. So ultimately she gives him, but she makes a trade-off. She says, I have Jacob tonight. Um, <laughs> Sounds like the show Big Love. Uh, so uh, Leah goes on to have two more children, two more sons, uh, and a daughter Dina? called Dina. That's right. Well, Dina will re- we'll meet again. Dina's going to cause a fair share of headaches to uh, her parents. Uh, now... In the Midrashic sources, we actually find out that Dina was supposed to be a seventh son for Leah. Uh, but remember, Jacob already has ten sons. She's got four from the concubines, Bill and Zilpah, and six from Leah. So there's only two more sons to go around. So Leah realized that if this child that she's harboring within her is another boy, that means that Rachel... Right, will necessarily have less than the concubines. So the word dina, the word dina means a judgment. She made an eternal judgment and she prayed that at the stage of the development of the fetus, where it still could grow either way, that it should grow female. And that's why we see dina actually still displays some masculine tendencies. And that's why she had such a tough life. Uh, but uh, but you know the, the story of Dina is because she was really intended to be another son, uh, a seventh son, and an ele- for for Leah and an eleventh son for Jacob. Uh, but she uh, was was at the last minute she was changed into being a female. This is the idea of uh, gender fluidity is uh, is not new. In fact, we're told in the Jewish sources that the, up to forty days in the gestation it could still go either way. Either way, God remembered Rachel. God hearkened to her and opened her womb. What? Yeah, of course. Well, at, at, well, you you believe that as as zygote is already established, if it's male or female, it's a single cell. The moment of insemination. Okay, so then. Surprised you're not pro-life in Bruce. Yeah, that's a good call there. I don't know what I am, but I... <laughs> I'm saying, I, I, you know, you, you're, you're an expert in uh, embryology. I, I ain't saying, well, I'm reading about uh, mandrakes, I hear. <laughs> I'm saying... <laughs> but, I've got some of that in my car, you'll love it. Uh, but, uh, this is the first time I ever remember herbs or anything like that being introduced. Well, he said, it's a bi- I just took a biblical aphrodisiac because I couldn't come up with duodenum or whatever. Duda- that's the Hebrew word, dudaim. Whenever, whenever, there's a, whenever there's a word... Whenever there's a Hebrew word whose with definition is unclear, you just say the Hebrew word, and because it can mean because is it mandrake or some other sort of herb? But uh, it's good to know. I don't know how you would possibly know that the status of that the that the gender is already established when all you have is one cell. It's 
How's it easy? Yeah. You just look at the chromosomes. Exactly, yes. but but an embryo has the same amount of chromosomes as a. As yeah, but a people believe people is. believe today. I'm not one of them that. People, that even people with fully developed humans are not really their their gender. Their gender is somewhat uh, in question. So I mean, are you I mean, talking about transgender? Oh yeah, like the, 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 the I'm saying. We're good. That's getting into either way. We're good. We're good. Okay, good. Um, Rachel has a son. What does she name her first son? Benjamin. Uh, Joseph. Joseph is older than Benjamin, of course. Um, what does uh, Joseph mean? So the Torah tells us that she named Joseph for two reasons. Right? The first reason is because Joseph means to gather or to add. So when she says gather, is God gathered in my shame. I'm no longer barren, bereft of children. And, and Joseph also means to add. Now I want another one. Add me another one. Um, now, what's this disgrace? What's this shame? It's a very interesting Rashi here. Rashi says that uh, that Jacob, uh, that Joseph is now gathering in the shame of Rachel. Rashi says why? Because previously, if anything broke in the house, whose fault was it? It was Rachel's fault. If anyone finished the figs in the house, whose fault was it? It's Rachel's fault. And now she has a scapegoat. Now, who broke the dish? Joseph, your son broke the dish. Right? Who ate all the cookies? Joseph did. That's what Rashi is. A very interesting Rashi. It's as if Rachel, a few verses prior, is telling Jacob, if I don't have any kids, I'm dead. I have no value. Whereas now she finally has a kid, and what she's celebrating? The fact that she now is a scapegoat. Now, anything goes wrong in the house? It's not my fault, necessarily. Now it could be Joseph, your son's fault. As if, you know, as, as if Jacob was the one who was so vindictive. Anything broke in the house. He was just, start screaming, oh, who broke this? Of course not. Of course not, right? But the lesson that we learn from this story is that when we are appreciative in our life, we tend to appreciate only the big things. Of course Rachel was appreciative of the fact that now she has purpose in life. But Rachel's greatness was manifested by the fact that she appreciated not just the big things, which almost everyone appreciates, but even the little things. Of course, having a child brings joy and gratitude to all parents. Because it's such a big thing. The greatness of someone is displayed by how much they appreciate little things, the small minor things. And we're told that that Rachel even appreciated the fact that now she has someone to blame. Even though I'm saying, how much blaming did she have to do in Jacob's house, right? Jacob, a man of remarkable character, is not someone who's going to start screaming when a dish breaks. But even the little bit of, 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 of solace that she has, of, of, of joy that she has, that now there's something else going on in the house and not everything goes wrong is her fault, the most minor of benefits of having a child, even that she appreciates. Now, when with the birth of... Joseph, Jacob makes his first attempt to leave. He tells his father-in-law, okay, now I have 11 kids, got a big family, I want to move on to my own. He says, whoa, no, no, don't leave me. Obviously, Laban was aware that his success, his material success was due to Jacob. He says to him, okay, now you'll work independently, right? You decide what you want to pay, what you're going to pay. And, of course, a very long episode of the Torah where he says, oh, I'll pay... Uh, I'll take all, all the sheep that have brown splotches, you know, larger than four centimeters, you know. 
Laban's delighted, sure. And when they do that, suddenly all the animals are born like that. Okay, let's change the terms. Now, not brown splotches, but black speckles. Okay, black speckles, all the animals are born black speckles. And by the way, we're told that how, the verse tells us how did, uh, how did Jacob manage to do that. So, of course, he has the Almighty on his side. That's going to help. But when actually, he came up with a nice, clever idea. He made these imagery, either speckled or splotches, whatever the imagery was, whatever the, whatever the flavor of the day was, he made that imagery and he placed it right in front of the animals when the animals were mating. So right at conception, right, there were images of speckles all over the place. Oh, wait a minute. You're, you're, I'm sorry. Never. Don't. I, 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 yeah, your, your question's obvious. Yes, I agree with your question. It's a good question. No, no, we're good. No, it's good. good. No, come on, Bruce. He can ask a question. Bruce's question is, wait a minute. If the gender is fluid, and nothing, so, so that, that's not determined by conception, so why is this determined? Good question. Yeah, I'm saying no. the, 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 the possibility is still there that at conception there is something going to be established, but it's still, there's still development. That's all we're saying. But I was hoping you would ask the question. <laughs> Uh, either way, Jacob is becoming wealthier and wealthier, and Laban is getting more and more bitter. He thinks that Jacob is stealing all his money. He has no idea how this is actually working. He, every time he changes the, the terms, the animals start changing. Uh, he gets uh, bitter, and it becomes an untenable situation, and Jacob decides to leave. And, of course, he decides to leave because of the terrible situation work environment that he's in, but also because God tells him to leave. Of course, uh, we notice a very interesting, if you actually look at the story uh, in chapter 31 of Genesis about his decision and his execution of his decision to leave, you find very interesting kind of negotiations that he, encou- that he engages with, uh, with his wives. So he has to tell his wives, we're leaving your homeland, we're leaving your family, we're abandoning, we're running away, we're going back to Israel. Uh, now, of course, that's a lot to do. But he begins by saying that your father changed my salary, the terms of my salary, a hundred times. Uh, he's been very bitter and uh, very angry. He doesn't want me here, uh, but it won't let me go. Unwanted. So at first he makes kind of a logical argument to them. It's not, it's not a good place for us, let us go. And then he says, oh, and by the way, God told me to go. And how do they respond? Very interesting. I'll tell you guys to read this. Very interesting. 14 years passed when he was doing this? Oh, it's more than that. 20 years passed. Because 14 years and then 60 years of working as, uh, you know, working for pay. And then Rachel and Leah respond to him. What are the, how do they respond? Quote, this is from verse 14. Have we then still a share and an inheritance in our father's house? Are we not considered by him as strangers? For he has sold us and even totally consumed our money. But all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. So now whatever God has said to you, do. Once again, they too employ the duality, this dual argument of on one hand, what do we have here? We're not going to be part of the inheritance. You know, you know, dad doesn't like us. He doesn't want us here. And then, oh, and by the way, God, whatever God told you to do, we should do. And this is a, a good idea, I think, for us to model ourselves after when we want to affect change. Change is hard. Change, certainly, to leave the family, leave your community, leave a place, you're, right, to go to the unknown. It's very difficult. 
And we, ha- we have to employ the fact that if it's right and if it's logical and it made sense, oh, and it's also what God wants us to do. As an example, uh, we're told very, very harshly about someone who gets angry. Anger is one of the worst characteristics in, in, Jewish, in Jewish life. Which is what the Talmud tells us, whoever gets angry, it's as if they worship idolatry. Terrible. But we have a tendency to get angry. So how would you stop yourself from getting angry? Employ the Jacob and Rachel and Leah approach. First of all, you say, well, does anger, is it effective? No, because you don't actually become more effective. It makes you look silly. We look at someone who's angry and starts throwing stuff, and they look silly. They look like a caricature. So it's not effective. You lose the respect of other people. People look, look down at you. Oh, and by the way, it's also prohibited by Torah law. And also God says terrible things about it. Kind of using those approaches of trying to find, you know, Shabbos. Shabbos is so beautiful. You get to spend time with your family. You turn off your phone for 25 hours. Phone's off entirely. No TV, no phone. But it's wonderful. And you get to spend time with your family. And you have to enjoy... Let me finish. Let me finish here, Stevie. Um, You get to enjoy time with your family. You have wonderful meals. You get to spend really time with humans without the interference of, of technology. It's wonderful. Oh, and by the way, the Torah mandates it. Yeah. Like, that, that, that's a good way to approach change. It's not just... Well, but, 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 but I'm not saying anger is a good thing. I'm just saying, doesn't, aren't we supposed to try and emulate God, even though we'll never get there? Isn't there many times in our so scriptures an- where it says the anger of the Lord was yeah, killed? Of course. Of course, of course, of course. But the anger has to be directed at evil. Every time that God's angry, it's angry at, uh, so at evil. So we we're to supposed to, in fact, I'll tell you, the Talmud tells, tells us in the book of Yoma, it says that a Torah scholar who does not, is, isn't vengeful like a snake, is not a Torah scholar. Well, vengeance is one of the things that's prohibited by Torah law. But it means that in, in the right setting, we should be vengeful and angry. We should be angry at evil. We should be angry at that the terrorists who mow down innocent policemen, innocent policemen in, in Dallas yes. and in Hebron, they, yes. they just shot a guy, shot, just yeah. shot him while he's driving his car, shot him dead. Yeah. Yeah, we and injured. The guy that went in and stabbed the, the, the 13-year-old. Oh, my goodness, of course. I mean, you know, we have to be terribly angry at that. Anger at, at, at immorality, so anger, anger at injustice. Yes, yes, yes. Situation. But uh, angry at, angry, you know, anger at... The challenges that God throws at you—that's a mistake. Yeah. <clears throat> but so it's like say, there's good if, anger and bad anger. If the Texans lose, we shouldn't be angry. Well, we should, we should be used to it already by now. Yes. Yes. It's from the Talmud. It says, Someone, whoever gets, whoever is, is merciful on cruel, on cruelty will end up be cruel on, 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 you know, on, on the merciful, on the weak. Um, so yes, there, there is the proper, of course, you know, there is the proper kind of anger and, and vengeance that's appropriate, in fact, mandated. Uh, but that's, of course, not what we're talking about. Okay, so they decide in the middle of the night to flee, uh, they run away, and Laban finds out. He starts chasing them down. And they have this standoff, very interesting standoff. 
to Laban, of course, he manages to get prophecy. God tells him, don't you dare tell a single thing, not good nor bad. If you do, I'm going to kill you. Of course, Laban comes into the encounter. Uh, he's uh, terrified of, of, of Jacob. Um, but they have this agreement. I want to read to you here the, uh, just the argument that Jacob presents and the response that Laban gives. It's very instructive of, of what a lot of interactions of diplomacy, for example, we have today. So what does Jacob say? A Laban overturned Jacob. Jacob pitched in the mountain. Fine, either way. Laban says to Jacob, Here we go. Jacob spoke up, and this is verse 36 in chapter 31. Jacob spoke up and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? When, uh, uh, when you rummage through my things, because Laban was missing something. He thought, he thought Jacob stole it. When you rummage through my things, what did you find from all your household objects? You know when you, you go visit your father-in-law, and like, you see a book that you like, and you know he won't miss it, right? You just pilfer it or whatever. I, you know, you have some stuff, you end up with one of his mugs, right? Something like, you know, you'll end up with something of his, right? Laban examined every single possession that Jacob had and didn't find anything that, that belonged to him. He's like, like what, what, what is this beef that you have with me? Like, why, why are you chasing me down so, so, so terribly? You're chasing me down and, you know, you're, you're, you're ridiculing me. Tell me right now what, what the deal is. And he goes on, he says, 20 years I've worked with you. Your animals, not your goats, not your, not your, not your sheep, none of them miscarried. None of your, I didn't eat a single one of your rams of your flock. I didn't bring you any animals that were mangled. I would bear the loss. If anything went wrong, Jacob would bear the loss. Um, it was, even if it was stolen. By day, scorching heat consumed me. By night, frost. My sleep drifted between my eyes. 20 years I worked tirelessly. 14 years for your two daughters. 6 years for your flock. You changed my wages 100 times. Had not the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the dread of Isaac been with me, you would have surely have me sent away empty-handed. God saw my righteousness and toiled my hand, so he admonished you last night. Jacob's like presenting a very logical, cogent argument. He's like, you have done nothing but mistreat me. I've done nothing but work tirelessly for you. Uh, yet you're pursuing me, you know, you're accusing me of sins, of misdeeds that I haven't done. What's the deal? Right? Presents a very logical argument here. How does Laban respond? Quotes. The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flock is my flock. And all that you see is mine. He doesn't respond to any of the content of the arguments of Jacob. He just says, this is the way it is. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. I don't care you what, nothing. Don't talk to me. And I, I think we find this today. Like people, you know, we, we talk about any argument we know about, about Israel, right? None, none of them talk about any of the history, like, you know, what are their standards of, you know, of, uh, of acquire, you know, acquiring land. It's occupied, you know. Uh, the only place in the Middle East where Arabs have the right to vote and determine their own future is, is in Israel. Apartheid, right? Um, the, the place where the, you know, the, 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 the Arabs living under Israel are doing very, very well compared to any one of their uh, you know, uh, um, co-religious 
religionists, they flourish, they do well, they, they, make, they make a lot of money, they're able to have cars and driving and, 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 and uh, economic uh, uh, upward mobility. Uh, no, uh, no, it's, it, there's, there's apartheid, there's blockade. It, you can't talk to them. You, know, you present an argument and you say, no, it's, it, it's just the categorical rejection of any, not even responding, you don't get, you don't get a response, no response. Most of them are very anti-Israel, the Arabs. But the point is, is that, like, we see like, all the way back from, from Jacob. You know, Jacob is representing the Jewish people. We're going to have to live a life as a nation where no matter, sometimes, sometimes, no matter what we say, whatever clear arguments, logical arguments we put forth, it's not going to matter, right? The sons are my sons, the doors are my sons, everything you see is mine, end of story. I'm not even going to respond. But I, I, I think, you, you know, your assumption is, is that people accept the obvious. is not necessarily true. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's the human condition, right? What is Laban's language? Was, was Lab- really well, Laban is, uh, he is, his, bro- his sister is Rebecca. So he's, he's Rebecca's brother. Well, we're not talking about Jewish. The Jewish nation hasn't been founded yet. It's Jew, the Jewish tribe is now. We're, we're in the gestational stages of, of, of the tribe, of, of what's going to be the Jewish people. It's going to be Israel. Okay. Right. That's right. That's right. Even though you know, Laban is, is one of the forefathers of the Jewish people, so to speak, via the fact that his two daughters are the matriarchs of, of the people. So there, were, there was something remarkable about, about, about him. You, you know, he was, there was a reason why Isaac sent Jacob to go back and find a wife from, from his daughters, uh, but there was still something very rotten about him as well. Uh, finally, uh, they make some sort of truce, and Jacob goes along his way um, to assume that all the troubles of his life were behind him is a grave mistake because right now he has to re-encounter uh, he has to re-encounter Esau. It's been 22 years since he left. Uh, There's time to travel, plus the, he made some stops along the way. Um, and he finds out that Esau was coming with him with an entire army. Uh, and the way Jacob prepares for battle is, is, has been a guiding light to all Jewish battles uh, thenceforth. In fact, in the first and second century when the rabbis and the sages and leaders of the people, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua, would make various trips to Rome to negotiate and counter uh, um, the Romans, they would always study this encounter of Jacob and Esau, because Jacob represented the Jewish people, Esau representing Rome and ultimately Christians, as an uh, instructive of how we have to encounter uh, these people. So first thing they did, uh, first thing Jacob did was to send uh, overtures of peace and goodwill. So he sends uh, gifts, uh, a whole long amount of gifts toward, to tells us how many, how many animals and, and servants, he sends to him just a really incredible amount of 
um, of here we go, uh, verse fifteen here. Two hundred she goats, twenty he goats, two hundred ewes. Uh, I don't even pronounce that. E W E. Use twenty rams, thirty nursing camels with their colts, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty she donkeys and ten he donkeys. That's not immaterial, <laughs> right? And he also spaces them. So first you get a little bit, and like, oh, but there's more. It's like that Steve Jobs. Oh, oh, one more thing, one more thing, right? And then there's another one. Oh, whoa, when one more? You know, just incredible. And of course, as we know that that's how you got to work. You, you got to bribe. Sometimes you got to bribe your enemies. Oh, he sent messengers ahead. Oh, okay. So, you know, they find out where they're going to encounter. Um, that's the first thing he does. The second thing he does, he prepares for battle. He prepares for battle. So he, you know, he sharpens his swords and, and prepares all his uh, quivers. and yeah, He prepares for battle. That's what you've got to do, right? So you've got to prepare for the eventuality that you may have battle. He takes his camp and splits them into two, which is also preparing for a worst-case scenario. What, what happens if, J, if, if Esau comes and decimates, let him decimate just one camp and not the, the, the other camp survive? And of course, he starts praying. And the prayer that he says, very interesting prayer, save me from my brother, from Esau. Of course, Esau is his only brother. But he's, he's praying to God to save him from two potential problems. From my brother, Esau is going to want to be chummy chummy with me. That's also a problem. Esau is a bad influence on Jacob and Jacob's family and Jacob's dynasty and mission, even if he treats him like a brother. Save me from my brother. I don't want him to be a brother. I don't want, well, I want him to be a brother, but I don't want him to be close like a brother to me because that's also harmful. And save him from Esau. Esau, the tyrant, the, uh, the bloodlust, Save me from him. I don't want him to come and decimate me, but I don't want him to be friendly with me as, as well. Because either way, I could, I, I could lose out in, in, in my purpose. And we know throughout history, you know, there's dangers when our, when our proverbial Esau's want to treat us like Esau. They want to uh, crucify us. They want to uh, have mass murder. They want to butcher us. They want to... Uh, auto, auto da fe us like that we see throughout history you know 100,000 people in, 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 in 1648 and 1649 in right? they just came and slaughtered to, you know just incredible butchery that you can't imagine Oh, he was very, very much aware. But we see through, I'm saying, throughout history, we are terrified of Asaph because Asaph causes us a lot of problems. We pray that the Almighty save us from Asaph. Uh, and we also, I mean, how do, we, how do we also encounter or pray against those who pretend like they are our Oh, we'll get to those, right. So, okay. so, so, so and we see throughout history, we have many times with Esau. Now, recently, the past probably 200 years, Big picture, but certainly in America, we're not scared of Esau as much as we're scared of our brother. What happens when the world embraces us? Well, then we have other problems. Then we lose our own identity, right? You know, then what does it mean to be a Jew? You know, if we're if we're accepted by everyone, which of course is a good thing, in a vacuum, we're accepted, but there's a tremendous danger because then. We are, there are brothers, and we're brethren, and we can live together in peace, but then we lose 
our identity as a nation, right? Because, you know, we, we could be like everyone else. We could be citizens of the world, and we don't need to be different. But when we're not different, then we, we, we lose our special character. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not yeah. If you hate somebody, I gotta tell me you hate them, which is a little awkward. <laughs> the thing is, it's like it's it's totally. I mean, it's it's eye opening because you think, oh well, I have to forgive everyone and just lay down and you know take it. And but the thing is, is like actually, it's you just need to be upfront and not hide. Well, but forgiveness right? is not necessarily a Jewish concept, is it? Well, it, it, it is, but uh, in certain contexts. Well, but we spoke you, about it here not, once uh, a couple of a couple of years ago about a whole class of forgiveness. Well, but yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's, that's kind of conflating yes. what Jesus said, "Love your enemy," but Judaism doesn't say that. Judaism says, "Love your neighbor," but not necessarily. Well, it doesn't actually say, "Love your neighbor." In Hebrew, it says "reacha," which means your fellow. Just but, okay, but that's not necessarily your enemy, right? I mean, it can be loved. Isn't there a word for stranger also? Yes, so it doesn't say stranger. Um, it does not? It does not say stranger. It says, it says fellow. Well, what does that actually mean? It's a good question. Um, my, my question to you is, I don't know what J.C. may or may not have said. What has history shown? Where has all this love of your, uh, of your enemy been throughout the past 2,000 years of, of Christian-Jewish relations? Where, where has it been? Uh, we've got a lot more uh, sort of Constantine well, than we've gotten uh, turning that, the other but, cheek. But, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't... Yeah, exactly. The Christian message, which I, I don't understand completely, is turn the other cheek. Uh, it's, it's, but, it's the but, message, theoretically. I don't think that's necessarily the Jewish message. I thought... Well, sure. I'm saying that's... It's, it's, yes, listen. It's, well, it's, not in Israel. It's, if they turn we the other cheek, don't they believe... Do? In yeah, of course we don't. We don't believe in in excusing away evil. Uh, there are things that are unforgivable. We don't forgive murderers. We don't or rapists. We don't forgive them. Absolutely not. That's not a Jewish idea. We are not okay with evil. We're not. We're not okay with it. I don't think we when someone does something wrong to you, that then it becomes you know then your your responsibility is to find a way to forgive them for your you know yourself. Exactly yourself. Because you, you forgive the evil that someone did to you, God will forgive the evil that you did to can God. Can we forgive the Nazis? No way. Okay. I'm not but, forgiving the Nazis. But would, would, Absolutely not. Would certain certain other faiths say? I don't know what other faiths say. Okay. Okay. So. Um, <laughs> I want to go quickly through the rest of, of Jacob's history. I know we're, we're running out of time here. Um, uh, Jacob, indeed, survives the encounter with Esau. He survives both problems. He's no lo- he, does, he, he survives the problem of, of Esau, of Esau's of the brother, and he manages to, uh, uh, to gain uh, uh, safety and, and settles in Israel. Uh, to assume that now the troubles are behind him is once again a, a mistake. He's going to be confronted with relentless tribulations. So first thing that happens is his daughter gets kidnapped and raped and assaulted uh, by one of the uh, princes of, of Shechem. In fact, his name was Shechem. 
Uh, and that was devastating to her brothers. These were all uh, A1 personality types, alpha males, if you know what I mean. Uh, their sister gets raped and brutally assaulted, and they're not going to take it quietly. Uh, so they uh, engage in a... So that alone was obviously very painful, I'm sure, for Jacob to accept. Uh, but then the brothers, Shimon and Levi, decide they're going to do this mass deception and destruction of the city of Shechem. So they say, okay, you want to marry Dina, you love her so much, but you're uncircumcised. So you have to circumcise, and the whole town has to circumcise. Say, oh, okay, for Dina we'll do anything. They get circumcised, and then they're all in hospital beds, and they go through town, and they marode through town and, uh, and destroy the whole city, kill every male. Can you imagine what Jacob has to deal with now? He got two sons that are, you know, that they, they went rogue. And now, of course, you know, they were terribly upset about what, what this town did to their sister. Now, you say it was just Shem, yeah, but the rest of the town was complicit as well. But to go to such extremes, and, to, you know, and he's like, what's going on? Where'd you get that from? And he tells them, by the way, he, he tells them, he admonishes them throughout, throughout their life, but all the way at the end of his life as well. He says, you guys employed the methodology that was stolen. He tells them, you, you guys used stolen tools, because this is not the voice of Jacob. This is the hand of Esau that behaved over here. This is not the, what, what we represent. Of course, now Jacob is fearful. What's going to happen? Will everyone gang up and now against this nascent tribe and start attacking them? Uh, next thing is deal with it. Rachel dies in childbirth. Right? So his, his young wife, was relatively young at the time, she dies in childbirth. Uh, he has to bury her in Bethlehem, even though he would have liked to have been buried with her in, in Hebron. Uh, the whole story of Joseph and his brothers. Of course, you know the story well. Joseph is his... You know, the apple of his eye. He's the firstborn from Rachel. Uh, he treats him with tremendous love and closeness and maybe to a fault. So the whole debate, did Jacob show favoritism? Did Jacob contribute to the animosity that the brothers had for Joseph? Clearly he did. It's a discussion, but there are opinions that say that. Say that. Um, but for any parent to have infighting with their children is painful but infighting wherein they sell him as a slave or they conspire to try to kill him. And then they sell him as a slave and they tell dad, oh, he, we found his coat. He must have been ravaged by some animal. That's tremendous and painful. Jacob goes into a period of melancholy. Um, Judah. Judah was, one of the, was the strongest of the sons. He has this whole encounter with Tamar. Right? He, is, he marries, his, his wife dies, his kids die, and then he gets duped into... Uh, a relationship with his daughter-in-law. It's like the black eye that, that would show in the family. Uh, and Jacob sees his accomplishments starting to unravel. Like his kids are, uh, you know, J- Judah sent away. Joseph is gone. We think he's dead. Presumed dead, but we don't have any hard evidence. Um, and then what happens? There's a famine. They all head down to Egypt. They have to engage with this Viceroy of Egypt, which of course we know is Joseph himself, but he doesn't tell him that. And he's like, oh, I'm going to take Shimon, by the way. Uh, go back and bring me Benjamin. So Shimon's gone. Now Benjamin's gone. Judah's gone. Where's Joseph? Everything is unraveling. His whole family, this whole dynasty that he's going to build, the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, every one of them perfect. Every one of them going to be a father of, 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 of the nation of, of Israel, which is even his name. All that... Uh, is coming is just crumbling before his very eyes. 
Uh, Jacob suffers a lot, and indeed, this, like we said again and again, we see is emblematic of Jewish history. Jewish history, we have a vision, we have a universalistic vision of affecting change in the world, coming back to Israel. Right? That, that was a dream for 2,000 years. And it was, it was a pipe dream, really. Because the thought of going back to Israel, yeah, the Torah talks about it, and yeah, that's part of our mission, but how are we going to do that? You know, our nation is torn asunder. We're scattered throughout the world. We have no unity. We, we're under constant threat of extinction, of extermination. The thought of going back to Israel, it's a house of cards, right? And Jacob himself. He's, you know, yes, he's told that he's going to have this tremendous nation, but where is it? It's not appearing at the beginning. Only at the end does he find where everything comes together and every, you know, everything falls into place. And that's going to be the story of the Jewish people. In the end, everything's going to fall in place. It mirrors the story of, of, of Jacob uh, uh, perfectly. Now, now ben- Benjamin's the youngest, right? Yep. Ben- Benjamin's the youngest. Is he also Rachel's? Yes. Okay. Yes. Rachel died in childbirth. Oh, but yes. Benjamin survived. Yes. Um, so who's I would assume Billa, which which was the yeah Billa or his brothers or dad. Now, things we know the whole story. We'll go through in detail, but things, everything comes together. They realize jo- Joseph is alive, and he's the viceroy, and Shimon's okay, and Benjamin will be fine, and Judah come back came back into the fold, and Jacob has this emotional reunion with his son Joseph, and we're told, in fact, in Rashi tells us, but if you look at the story, it's clear that Joseph is very emotional and Jacob is stoic. Joseph is crying on his shoulders and Jacob is not crying at all. So Rashi tells us, what was Jacob doing? He was reciting the Shema. So you think about this. You have this momentous reunification with your son, your most favorite son. And what happens? Now I'm going to say Shema. So I think I want to kind of circle back to the stories of our forefathers in general, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Like we, we, they are the only ones that we say the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob uh, in, in Jewish literature and Jewish prayer. Uh, why? What, what's special about them? So we're told in the Talmud that the, the forefathers are the chariots of God. Merkava, they're the Merkava, the chariot of God. What does that mean? So my grandfather explained is that you have uh, a leader of a country, a president, and they always have their car ready to go. Like Obama has his, the, it's called the beast, right? This big Cadillac, it's always a Cadillac, right? With, you know, with the bomb-proof, everything's bomb-proof and thick, thick walls, right? All the nice amenities, and it's always ready. It's always fueled. It's always ready to take the president where he needs to go. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were always ready for divine presence. They were always at a state of readiness. If I told you, you, you know, wait till the morning, I told you, the president's coming to visit. What would you say? I need five minutes. I've got to tidy myself up. I've got to tidy up the house. I've got to prepare. What am I, right? That's the way we are, we are. We're not always ready. We have to be prepared. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're the chariot. They're always ready to go. Always in a constant state of readiness for divine presence. Now, what's going to happen? Jacob is going to meet Joseph. It's a tremendously emotional time. What happens when you have a, you're emotional, you're losing a little bit of your state of readiness? To preempt that problem, Jacob did not want to lose his status 
as a chariot of God, so to speak. And therefore, he preempted this emotional interaction with saying the Shema, with accepting God right away to, 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 to minimize the amount of diversion he's having from a constant state of, of readiness. It shows us a little bit about who jo- Jacob was as a spiritual individual, of course, Abram and Isaac before him as well. Jacob arrives to Egypt. The famine that had begun five years prior stopped right away. He's, of course, the father of Joseph, who's the hero of, e- uh, of Egypt. He himself becomes a hero. He is the head, the leader of this very impressive stable of accomplished young people. Um, he was terrified he was going to be deified. Egypt had, a, uh, they deified, every, all the leaders were deified in, in ancient Egypt. He, he, of course, did not want to be deified. He tells Joseph, as he's getting older, bury me in Israel. Um, and the Torah tells us that he bowed, he genuflected to the head of his bed. Uh, J- Jacob, at the end of his life, sees how everything really fits into place. He sees that all his kids are okay. Joseph did not become kind of an Egyptian. He's still, uh, he's still true to the cause, to the, to the Abrahamic cause. Um, he's, um, his, his bed, so to speak, his family is perfect. Um, despite all the bumps in the road, in the end, uh, Jacob has the gratitude everything worked out. Uh, as he's getting older, about to die, he calls in all his kids, he blesses them. I would encourage everyone to read those blessings with the commentaries because you find how Jacob, how Jacob was able to understand the quality uh, plumb to the depths of the character of each one of his kids. Uh, he uh, he uh, gives them the blessings uh, and he dies. Uh, the Talmud tells us a very strange statement, Jacob didn't die. Well, the verse says he did die. So what does that mean? Of course, Jacob died. He's not alive anymore. But it means is that the normal tension that exists at death with separation of body and soul that happens to normal people didn't happen with Jacob. Jacob, he lived a life of such a heightened spiritual life that his soul and his body were living in such harmony that the separation of the two was seamless. Normally, when to die the way we understand to die is separation of soul and body. Well, soul and body, they're bound together at birth, but they're still separate domains. However, our behavior influences, do they get further bound or not? So, for example, a sin, by definition, is is a bodily act. It's a bodily act, but because it's a body that the, it's an act the body and the soul do in unison, because the human is soul and body. Therefore, the the soul becomes more bound to the body. And the more sins we do, the more bodily activities we force our soul to do, the more connected the soul becomes with the body, and thus the separation of the two becomes more painful. In fact, the Talmud tells us there's 903 levels of death. The best kind of death is like pulling a hair out of a glass of, of milk. Seamless. That's the kind of death that Jacob had. What's the worst kind of death? It's like taking thorns that got caught up in a ball of wool and separating the two. So our death is going to define really what our life was about. Jacob didn't die. Of course he died. The soul and body were separated. But that's not death. That's like just removing 
you know, remove, pulling out the hair out of the glass. That's, there's, there's no friction whatsoever. Of course, uh, Jacob is the com- culmination of the forefathers, uh, a man of tremendous character, uh, tremendous integrity. You see what he did for his father-in-law as an example. But someone who was, of course, forced out of his comfort zone and someone who was very much representative of the Jewish people uh, as a whole. We look at Jacob's story. Of course, Jacob is renamed Israel because he's representative of our nation as a whole. Uh, and his story mirrors the story of the Jewish people. Of course, there's going to be tensions from the very beginning. Even and at the inception of our nation, we have cosmic battles with, with Esau. We're going to be forced to succeed with our hands tied behind our back. We're going to have to encounter Laban, the forces of Esau and Laban. We're going to have to be successful with our hands tied behind our back. We see throughout history, Jews were restricted. You weren't allowed to go to universities. You weren't allowed to own land. You weren't allowed to be citizens. And somehow, they were able to do it regardless. And that, where does that come from? That's a reflection of, 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 of Jacob and, and Israel. And throughout our history, we're going to be wondering, will we actually fulfill our destiny? Who knows? We're going to lose Joseph. We're going to lose Judah. We're going to lose Rachel. We're going to have you know, these problems with Dina. We're going to have Asa. All these problems. But ultimately, at the end, we're going to be able to kind of bow to the, to the bed and thank the Almighty for this completion. Indeed, we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as luminaries. Their stories instruct us and inspire us this very day. I thank you all, and I look forward to seeing you guys next time. There's a quick question there. The significance of Jacob taking Ephraim and Manasseh and switching the hands for the blessing? Yeah, so that's, that's an example of Jacob acting upon prophecy. Um, uh, Ruvain was supposed to be the firstborn. What happens is the firstborn gets double portioned. Ruvain lost three things. Ruvain, is story, I want to get the story. We have a whole class on the, on the, on the tribes and stories, all the stories of, of each and the story of Judah and Reuben. Reuben lost the kingdom. He was supposed to be the monarch. He was supposed to be the priest, and he was supposed to be the firstborn. He lost all three. Kingdom, he lost to Judah, family of Judah's family kingdom. The priesthood, he lost, he lost to, um, to Levi, and the firstborn he lost to Joseph. So Joseph was the firstborn, so he got a double portion. Thus Joseph was split into two tribes, where Joseph became, one became two. He got a double tribe. But switching the hands is because Jacob realized, even though Ephraim was younger, he is the more, he, he, he is the greater of the two. So he sent his right hand over. But in the blessing that you give over your children, you say your children should, in the Shabbat, should be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah, but you don't, we don't flip our hands. Only Jacob did. Okay, so you, put you do one kid at a time. You still have your five Menashe. Yes. What happens with Dina? Dina uh, is um, brought back into the fold. Uh, she's rescued from Shechem. Uh, there are sources that talk about her marrying uh, one of her brothers or half brothers. Um, you're getting a funny face here in the crowd. Uh, remember, this is this is this is before the Jewish law. There's no law yet. There's no. Um, uh, so she might have married one of her brothers. It's unclear. Maybe she. Maybe she didn't. Who knows? <laughs>
things that people were doing, you know, in different tribes in different areas that were just, you know, cool. And so they wanted their, their children and their kids to marry. Yeah, it was very clear the theme was. We don't know, we don't know, the Torah doesn't tell us who, besides for, uh, besides for Joseph, we don't know who these, these married. Let's go to the Midrash sources. Joseph, we know who he married. He married the, the uh, Osnat Bas Potifera. That's, we know who he married. Uh, but besides for that, we don't really know. Um, who um, who they married, but uh, Dina is included amongst the tribes, so it's part of the Jewish people. Yeah. I read somewhere they found that she ended up in Egypt in Pharaoh's court. Yeah, so there are sources. It's not so clear what happened to her. There are different sources that talk about what happened to Dina. And go back to uh, before, as Jacob is going back to meet Esau, yes. and he sends everybody ahead, and he's alone, and he wrestles with. Yes, he wrestles with an angel. That's an angel. That's an angel, yes. I didn't have time to talk about all the stories. There's more stories. Uh, I advise everyone to read. Uh, read. If you could get yourselves on a, a copy of, of the Torah with Rashi in English, Rashi fills in all the backstory. So he's battling with the, the angel of Esau. What does it mean to have an angel of Esau? How is he battling with him? What's the battle about? What's he touching? He's touching his, he hits his uh, sciatica. He kind of, Dislocates his le- a lot of stuff going on there, uh, but that's the angel of Esau. Yes. The thing that puzzled me about that is it says they wrestled till dawn, and the angel could not overcome him. Yes. So Jacob overcome. is Jacob is someone who is able to wrestle with an angel and not lose. Doesn't say that he won, but he, he, he didn't lose. And by the way, who else are we told that's able to engage with angels? Moses. Moses also had had to negotiate with angels. But isn't the whole the message also struggle with God? I mean, wasn't the angel representative of God? No. Well, it's every angel is, but the, the idea is is that our soul is akin to an angel. If you had your soul in isolation, it's able to negotiate, engage with angels, no problem. The only reason why we can't we can't engage with angels is because we also have a body, but. Jacob was someone who was able to neutralize his body and thus expose his soul and bring his soul out and have that play a dominant role. That's why he's able to engage with angels. But I thought the, there was some sort of, since we are wrestling, with, I thought that was another message of the story, that struggle with God. Yes, yes. It's once again this cosmic struggle that we're having uh, with Asav and, and his forces and what that represents. Yes. Okay, everyone. I'll see you all next time.